We're going to continue the study we began several weeks ago in Judges. And to prime the pump, I would like for you to pay attention to this video. It's about a site in Israel called the Spring of Harod. And it becomes significant in the text for tonight. So take a look at this video. Deep within the Jezreel Valley on the side of Mount Gilboa sits the Spring of Harad. On Mount Gilboa, King Saul and his son Jonathan would lose their lives in battle with the Philistines. But before the time of the kings in Israel were the times of the judges. After Deborah was a judge, the people once again abandoned God and for seven years they were at the mercy of the Midianites and Amalekites. It got so bad that they had to hide in caves and mountain clefts harvesting their crops in secret just to survive. In this time of great struggle, God sent an angel to give a message to a man named Gideon. And to make a long and fascinating story short, Gideon raised an army of 32,000 to fight back. According to the scriptures, early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. Counterintuitively, God whittled the army down to 10,000 by sending away anyone who was afraid, and then to a mere 300, based on the way the men knelt to drink from this very spring. With these 300 men, God delivered the Israelites from their bondage, and Gideon was judge in Israel for 40 years. The story of Gideon serves as a constant reminder that in our own strength, we are powerless. But in walking with God, we find his wisdom to navigate and his strength to go before us. So that is the spring of Harod. You might have been there on uh, our trips to Israel. Sometimes we go to this site. It's a real site. It's mentioned in the book of Judges, which we will continue studying Tonight, the book of Judges. The theme has to do with rebellion and restoration. Israel's repeated rebellion and God's gracious restoration. It's perplexing to us that Israel, so spiritually privileged, continues to rebel. And just as amazing that God continues graciously to forgive and to restore and what's significant about that is, as God was, so God is. So as he was in response to Israel's sin, so too he is with us. He's the God of all grace. So the theme of the book is rebellion and restoration. Israel sins, Israel suffers the consequences thereof. Israel cries out to God, he hears her cry, and he sends deliverance in the form of deliverers or judges. Hence, the book of Judges. We've read about four or five of them already. And tonight, we'll continue to study about Gideon, who we spoke about in Judges 6 some weeks ago. Gideon has this in common with all the judges in the book. He's very flawed, weak, and inadequate. So, too, are all of the judges. Which begs the question, why does Almighty God use people like that? Well, what's the option? Who else does he has to have to work with but flawed, imperfect individuals like Gideon, like you and I? 
Gideon is a judge who's spoken about more than any other in the book of Judges. In fact, three whole chapters are devoted to him. Uh, Judges 6, 7, and 8. And having completed Judges 6 last time, let's dive into Judges 7 right now. Here's how it begins in verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, now that's Gideon. It was a nickname assigned to him by his father. When Gideon stood up to those who were worshiping a false god, Baal, a Canaanite god, and had the altar of Baal torn down, his father became very proud and assigned to him the nickname Jerubbaal, which means the one who fights with Baal. So that name kind of stuck with him. So Jerubbaal and all the people who were with him rose early, and they camped beside the spring of Harod. And here's the depiction of it already. You saw it in the video. Here's what it looks like again today. This is the likely site of what we're about to read in Judges chapter 7. The spring of Harod, it means in Hebrew, the spring of trembling. And the camp of Midian, the Midianites, were a nomadic people, perennial enemies of Israel. They were camped on the north side by the hill of Moray in the valley. So take a look at this map. I get a chance to use my, my pointer. Let's see if it works. Oh, it does if you point it the right way. So uh, here's an actual picture of Gideon, in case you're wondering. It was a selfie, I think, actually. Look, here's Israel. Uh, we're in the northern part of Israel, pretty much. The significant inland bodies of water are this one, the Dead Sea in the south. This one, Lake Galilee. We call it Sea of Galilee because the weather conditions on it, though it's a lake, can resemble the kinds of weather conditions you would run into at sea. Between them is the, uh, is the Jordan River, and so it becomes a natural boundary between Israel on this side and other countries like right here up north off the map would be Syria, and then south of it would be Jordan. As you bend around, Egypt would be down here. As you go up north, Lebanon would be here, and further to the east right about here, would be countries like Iraq and Iran. Perhaps you've heard of those. They're in the news. I'm so tempted to depart from our text tonight and talk about that, but I'm not going to um, because I'll get into trouble. But anyway, so here's the Jezreel Valley. Gideon's men are camped out here at the spring of Harod. Again, this is kind of in the north. This body of water is the Mediterranean Sea. So this is the coastline of Israel on the Mediterranean, just to give you an idea. And then we read this now in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Please put yourself in Gideon's shoes, or I suppose more accurately, put yourself in his sandals. He's going against a big Midianite army. We know, according to Judges chapter 8, it numbered 135,000. Soon you'll see Gideon's forces were only 32,000. So the odds are already against him. Now, on top of this, God intervenes and says, you have too many 
What a perplexing thing for God to say. And he even explains himself. And he says, no, no, no. You see, even those whom you have are such that if you could pull off a victory by chance, you would take credit for it. You would boast about about it. You would say, my own power has delivered me. And so God sets out to pare down the much smaller force that Gideon has already. Now, from a human point of view, I think you'll agree, it makes no sense. And once again, we're getting to see that God's ways are simply not our ways. Even with 32,000, if they pulled off a victory, they would be tempted to take credit for it. And God will not allow that to happen because he loves us too much. And so God declares that Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. So while you and I, even today, are busily about the business of building ourselves up, establishing self-reliance, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, God is doing the exact opposite. Gideon thought the enemy were the Midianites, but they were no foe that God couldn't deal with. The real enemy was Gideon's pride on the inside, and that's the way it is with you and us. We think life's circumstances on the outside are really the issue, but those are ones God only allows in order to do war against the real enemy, which is pride within. I've told you this uh, before, and I still believe it. I think one of the most dangerous philosophies of the day, and we offer this even to our young kids, is this. Believe in yourself. That is a terrible thing to tell a young, inadequate, fleshly child. You don't want your child believing in himself because then if he runs in later in life to a problem greater than his own resources, where's he going to go? You see, we're in the business of making an appeal to the flesh and to the self, self-reliance, self-confidence, and God is in the business through harsh life circumstances of reducing us. We want to be strengthened, and God wants us to be weakened, not to hurt us, but to help us win victory over the greatest foe, which is self-sufficiency. This other philosophy, you can be anything you want to be. That's a lie, folks. No, you cannot. You do not have sovereignty over life's circumstances. You do not have the capacity to be anything you want to be. That's dangerous. So while God is in the process of reducing our strength, he's also in the process of building up strength in a different way. He wants us to be strong in expressing our faith and dependence on him. Now, we hate this. Admit it. We don't mind Jesus dying for our sins and forgiving our sins, but we hate the daily dependence on him, which he requires. We don't like it. We want to be independent of God. We want to be autonomous. I don't want to wait for God to deliver the goods for me. I want to find ways to increase positive outcomes, decrease negative outcomes without having to wait on God. If I'm in pain, I want to find ways of pleasuring myself so as to diminish the pain. I don't want to wait for God to come through. And so not a one of us is going to volunteer to be weakened and reduced. And therefore, our loving Father doesn't wait for us to ask for it. He just does it. Now, this one verse of Scripture, I think, is perhaps one of the most key in all the Bible as far as giving us some insight into what God is doing and why he allows circumstances to come our way that are quite overwhelming to us. 
My uh, youngest son just recently suffered a tremendous trauma crisis having to do with the loss of a close friend, a fellow police officer. He's really struggling with it himself. And uh, we had a chance to chat the other day, and we spoke about this very passage of Scripture. What is God up to in the throes of life, the times that reduce us, that leave us disoriented in a fog? Those are the words he used. I feel like I'm in a fog. Why is it that a loving father would allow circumstances that produce those things in us? Folks, it's because the biggest enemy we face is self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and God the Father wants us to cling to him for blessing. Do you remember a guy named uh, Jacob way back in Genesis who had trouble with his brother Esau? On one occasion, he stripped of everything he depended on, his family and livestock, everything are on one side of a river. He spends a night on the other side, and the text says he was wrestling with the angel. I think it was the Lord Jesus himself. And uh, he said to the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. Some people say, well, obviously that couldn't have been God because God could have evaded his grasp in a second. Yeah, but he didn't want to. Don't you see? God wants us to be put in a situation through the hardships of life where we have nothing and no one else to cling to. And we grab onto God and we say to him, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, none of us will volunteer for that position. And so the Father allowed circumstances in our life that produces that kind of dependence. After wrestling with the angel, he was stricken so too was, so was Jacob in the sinew of the hip, which I'm told is one of the strongest parts of the human anatomy. And he went off limping. He went off limping. It was a wonderful reminder of his frailty, of his humanity, uh, of his need to depend upon the Father. He was stricken physically, but he got healthy spiritually when he realized dependence on the Father is the safest place to be. Folks, you and I are in danger, I think, when things are going very well. I think that's why God won't allow it for too long. When things are going very, very well, We lose our sense of neediness for Almighty God. We do believe him as the one who forgave our sins, but we don't believe him for life. We're strong enough. We're able enough. We're accomplishing enough. We kind of put God on the shelf. And that's why he allows times of affliction and hardship to come our way so as to help us to remember we need him Every hour. So that's kind of what's happening here. That's why Gideon wants to build up his forces, and God is doing the exact opposite. He's reducing his, for, uh, his forces. Now, this is a paradox, but we could see it playing out in the life of one named Paul. He was in danger of being too strong. Paul was too bright, too capable, too strong, too able for his own good. Therefore, God weakened him in ways I don't fully quite understand. But he did so so that Paul would come to rely not on his own strengths, but on God's. And so here's what it says about all that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Many people think it was some kind of eye problem, impaired vision. And he prayed and he prayed, oh God, let me see, let me see. And Paul is concluding, though he prayed three times, that wasn't the best thing. And so he records for us in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Folks, that is the normal Christian life. That's a shock to our system because we don't understand how God operates. This is the normal Christian life. We will not engage in self-emptying, so God, through circumstances, empties us. Why? So that we cling to him for blessing and find out that he is the sufficient one. We are not. And that our father knows and stands ready to see us through even the most difficult of life circumstances. So Paul goes on to say, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. Who in life boasts about their weaknesses? Paul said, I want to do it so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And in verse 10, he says, Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is a biblical paradox. You do not get that in the world's school of philosophy. It's the opposite. This, however, is the normal Christian life. And this kind of thing explains to me why a loving God allows even harsh circumstances, painful ones, even loss to come our way. It is to enhance our sense of dependence on him. So then, having been given a bit of a glimpse into the ways of God, designed to keep our number one enemy, pride, in check, here now is what God tells Gideon to do, verse 3. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned and only 10,000 remained. Oh my goodness. Now if you've ever been in the military, you can't afford to be in combat with those who are going to get in the way. When I was in the military as a chaplain, one of my jobs was to find those who were combat multipliers in our forces. Namely, if we had to be in combat, those would be the guys who would multiply your efforts in combat. Others would detract from the mission. So here you got 22,000 who were sheepish, trembling. They would have infected the others. So now Gideon's force, already small, is reduced from 32,000 to a mere 10,000. And verse 4 tells us, the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I'll test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. So there you go. Uh, It really doesn't have too much to do with the lesson, but I like dogs. 
And so there you go. So here's a dog. If you think about the way dogs lap, you know, they just get their face in the water and they kind of make a lot of noise. In fact, the Hebrew word for laps right here uh, is the word yalak, yalak. It's made to sound like the sounds a dog actually makes in the process of lapping up water. Yalak, yalak. I tried to sound on my little dog, Millie. That's exactly the, she doesn't speak Hebrew, but this is exactly the sound dogs make. And so God says, anyone who partakes of the water this way, we don't want that person to go out to battle. So verse 6, now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. So this is kind of how it looked like. Some put their face right in the water or uh, uh, knelt. And though they gathered the water with their hand, their face was down. Others, on the other hand, knelt or stood and brought the water up. Now, they were more likely ones to go to war because they were aware of their circumstances. They didn't stick their face down in the water, thus becoming vulnerable to an enemy attack. No, these who put the water, cupped up the water with their hand and brought it up like this, they were more vigilant. They were aware of the enemy who's right around the corner. Well, unfortunately, out of the 10,000, those who drank that way only numbered 300 men. So Gideon's force is really being reduced now. Here, by the way, I'd like to show you a photo of uh, one of our previous trips to Israel. This was many years ago at this very place. And, of course, everyone wants to do what was being done in Judges chapter 7. So that's our group doing this. You know what's cool about this picture? Some of those people now are with the Lord, about three or four of them, members of our church, been here for years and years. This was years ago, have now been promoted uh, to heaven, but we had fun at this particular uh, place. And now we read in verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, I'll deliver you with 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. Now Gideon here is not where he wanted to be, but he is where he needed to be, totally dependent on God. You see, uh, the ratio now of Midianite soldiers to Israelite soldiers was 450 to 1. It means that the Israelite army at this point was reduced to 1% of its original size. And now, if Gideon gets the victory, he's going to be much less likely to take credit for it. So verse 8 said, The 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets of all things, not swords, trumpets, into their hands. Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about, the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've, I've given it into your hands. But, if you're afraid, God said, I've given it into your hands, but if you're afraid to go, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp. Uh, you see, this is the kind of person God has to work with. Gideon, we think of him as being great. He's not so great. He's very sheepish. He's very timid. He needs reassurance all the time. And an aware, insightful, and loving God gives it to him. Gideon, I told you I'm going to, in advance, I'm giving you the victory, but I perceive you're nervous about this whole deal. And so as to help you with your anxiety, I want you to go with your servant down into the camp and, verse 11, 
you're going to hear what they say, the Midianites. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. And so he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp. And now the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east, it was a coalition formed against Israel, they were lying in the valley. They were as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. A Midianite man was relating a dream he had to his Midianite friend. He said, behold, I had a dream. Here's the dream. A loaf of all things, of barley bread. Barley was the food of the poor in those days. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell. And it turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. It's God and his sovereignty who planted this dream in the mind of this particular Midianite because God is sovereign. And so the man in his dream saw a huge loaf of bread. That's what it was, unusual for sure. He saw a huge loaf of barley bread rolling downhill, and in the course of so doing, it flattened the tents of the Midianite soldiers as it rolled down the hill. And so his friend, verse 14, replied, well, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon. How did it come to that conclusion? This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. That is an unusual interpretation, unlikely, because the Midianites greatly outnumbered Israel. It would be unusual that one of the soldiers would give this very negative interpretation to the dream of his friend. How did it happen? Well, the same sovereign God who implanted the dream in the mind of one also gave the interpretation to the other. The interpretation was in Israel's favor, not in Midian's favor. And so, verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, here's what he did. He bowed in worship. And that's what God is up to. That's why he lovingly brings us often to the end of ourself, and then he fills us, heals us, addresses our wounds, our concerns, our fears, our anxieties, and then what happens is in our hearts, if not literally, we fall to our knees and we worship him. We don't worship ourselves. We give no credit to anything else. We say, Almighty God, look what you have done. Before Gideon did anything else, he bowed in worship. And this is what God is up to. He wants us to attribute worth to him. That's what worship is. Not worth to our inherent selves. Folks, no good thing dwells in us. So Gideon worships, and then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, he said to the others, he only got 300, arise, For the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. And so he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put trumpets. Those are called shofarim. Perhaps you've seen them. It's a a ram's horn. It's kind of like a curved deal. He put those uh, along with empty pitchers, pottery, clay pitchers, into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He divided the men into three groups so as to fool the Midianites into thinking they were surrounded. We don't have any record that God gave him that strategy, which tells us, 
Whenever you read the Bible, you, you see the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The fact that God is sovereign and gives the victory doesn't mean we sit around and do nothing. And so you see here, God already declared um, before it happened that Gideon would have the victory, but Gideon had to get off the couch and go to war. And I think Gideon, therefore, putting his head to this challenge, came up with this rather creative strategy. So he said in verse 17, he said to his 300, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. You see, all of this would would, would, would confuse the Midianites and would give them the idea that they're surrounded because typically in war, the trumpet would be blown by one designated person, not by 300. And so each trumpet blower would be in charge of a brigade, a battalion, who knows what. So if the Midianites hear 300 trumpets, they surmise, oh my goodness, there's a massive army uh, surrounding us when in fact that wasn't true. So verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch. So the middle watch would be between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. Kind of smart. The Midianites are getting tired. They're drowsy. And also it's a change of shift and whenever there's change of guard duty, that's a good time to strike because there's a little confusion. So that's what happens. So when they had just posted the watch, uh, they, they blew the trumpets and they smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. And so there you go. That's kind of a sort of a depiction of maybe what it looked like. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Very unusual battle cry because they went into battle swordless. They didn't have any. Remember what they gathered from those who were dismissed uh, were trumpets, <laughs> not swords. What does this mean then? A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Well, I think it's a reference for the Midianite swords, which you'll soon see God used to turn against the Midianites. Look, verse 21. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying as they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord, here we go, set the sword. It's the Midianite swords. The Israelites didn't even have swords. The Lord set the sword of one, one Midianite, against another even throughout the whole army. The army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards Zerirah, as far as the edge of Abel Mahola by Tabat. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against Midian. Take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian. Here are their names, Oreb and Zeeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeeb at the winepress of Zeeb while they pursued Midian. 
And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. What a victory. It defies brilliant military strategy, great materiel and equipment. They had pitchers and trumpets. They wouldn't dare take credit for the battle. And yet it's tempting to see that the hero of this story is Gideon, when in fact that's not true. The hero of this story is Almighty God, and that will be the testimony we will give when we see him face to face. We'll say, Lord Jesus, thank you for the heroic things you did on my behalf. I'm as flawed, insecure, apprehensive, and in need of reassurance as was Gideon, but you gave me the victory. It's not due to my own sufficiency and resources. In fact, mostly I struggled through life. I limped through it, just as Jacob did. I know you allowed that to happen. You reduced me divinely. You dealt with my temptation to build myself up and strengthen me. You did it so that I would bow and worship before you forevermore. The real hero here is the Lord Jesus. In fact, something's interesting. When you look through Judges, victory and peace only prevailed during the lifetime of the judge, the deliverer, the kind of mini-savior. And as soon as they died, the people lapsed back into sin and rebellion. I think, therefore, this record of mini-saviors and judges is just a foreshadowing of the ultimate savior. In fact, I think we could say the grand theme of judges is this, judges awaiting God's perfect savior. That's the Lord Jesus. Those judges, after they died, saw the people fall back into rebellion again. Oh, to have a deliverer and a savior who's won victory over death, who does not die. Well, that's the savior, the Lord Jesus. Because he lives forever, he lives to sustain us forever. Paul says, not that I'm adequate to consider anything as coming from myself, but my adequacy is from God. Easy to state, I don't like it. I would rather be strong, adequate, and praised for it. And God will not allow it because he loves us too much. He loves us as his sons and daughters, but he won't let us think of ourselves as gods. We cannot be masters of our own destiny. In fact, we're dependent on him even for the next breath we take. The best thing for us is to have our resources pared down. The fog, the likes of which my son is going through and others who suffer loss, is a very hurtful and painful thing, but it is not necessarily a bad thing. That's the workshop and laboratory in which God produces things of lasting consequence that matter more. There's real freedom not to be self-reliant self-sufficient, not to think we're strong and able. There's real freedom in realizing our weakness, throwing ourselves upon the greatness, goodness, and kind intentions of Almighty God. You see, he seeks to save us, not just from sin, but from this mad, mad quest to be dependent on ourself. It's a good thing to say, I don't know. I don't know how I'll make it. I don't know when this will pass. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know how I will be helped. I don't know who could help me. But I know the Lord Jesus has not brought me this far to abandon me. And as he was with Gideon and all the rest, 
in Judges, so too he is with me. He wants to prove himself to be the perfect dad not a person in here has ever had. The dad who says, depend on me. I don't want you pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You see, all that earthly, worldly ideology is really contrary to scriptures. We're in the, base, in the quest to build ourselves up once again. God is on a quest to reduce us, reduce us, to weaken us so as to strengthen us in other areas, and that is our confidence in him. It's quite freeing. The hero of this story is not Gideon. The hero of this story is Almighty God. Gideon, the deliverer, stood in need of a deliverer. So too do you and I stand in need of a deliverer. I hope you have found him in Jesus. I hope you have found him to be Jesus. You see, because he's a deliverer not subject to death and dying. This is the significance of the two events we celebrate, his death on a cross. We celebrate that because of what it accomplished. But then we also celebrate what happened next, his resurrection. If it was only the first event, mm, we're without hope. But because he rose up from death, uh, won victory over it. Therefore, we have a deliverer who will not die Therefore, neither will I. I'll feel like it at times. You, I, sometimes we don't think we have enough strength even for the next breath. I'm telling you, that's a very uncomfortable place to be. We wouldn't volunteer for it, but it may be the very safest place for us to be. As with Jacob, so too with us. When God strikes us, limits us in our area of strength, well, then we can say, as Paul did, when I'm weak, I'm strong for power, not mine, God's, is perfected in weakness. Now, what do you do about this lesson? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. That would be the opposite message. There's nothing you can do about it except, except the fact that uh, your father feels the permission, having redeemed you and purchased you, adopted you into his family. He feels the permission to shape and form you and reduce you and me in order to birth in us an awareness of his faithfulness and strength, the likes of which causes us to fall down and worship him. Um, sometimes when I have nothing to do, I reflect back on the prior events in my life which led me up to today, and I'm amazed. How did I get here? How did all that happen? How did it was it through wit and wisdom? Was it through a pastor, a counselor, a good book? No, God could use all those things, but no, no, no. The answer is that God has brought me thus far <laughs> because he owns me, he loves me, he redeems me, and none of it has to do with any inherent strength, ability, goodness, virtue, it all has to do with God producing a work in me that must redound to his glory, not mine and not yours. So we won't volunteer for any of that, I'm telling you, and therefore God exposes us to a medical diagnosis that took us by surprise, loss of a loved one we didn't see coming, forfeiture of a job we valued and prized, who knows what. All of these things God permits, and they produce in us victory over the big enemy. It's not the Midianites out there. God could handle them. 
Uh, it's my insatiable appetite to be autonomous from God. I do want Jesus to be there when I need him, but I really want him to leave me alone when I want to do my own thing. So do you. And therefore, God, lovingly to curb our appetite for independence on him, enhances our sense of neediness for him. Where are you going to go? Who are you going to cry to? I asked my son recently, where are you with the Lord? Are you angry? He said, no. <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm crying out to him. Uh, where else am I going to go? And I thought, though as a dad, my heart breaks for my son's pain, I thought, oh, look how the father is really using it to enhance his relationship with his heavenly father. So can you see this is the normal Christian life? Therefore, the Bible says, don't, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your proving, for your development. That is the normal Christian life. Don't be surprised when it happens. The Father intends it because he wants to show us heroic things. He wants to give us glimpses of his. He wants us to bring us through times that are only attributable to him. And then we have a story to tell. And then we can talk about God, our real hero, our ultimate deliverer. There's nobody else. Surely isn't someone like Gideon. It's Almighty God himself. I hope you have Jesus as your Savior. But I also hope you have him as your supplier and all-sufficient one now that you are saved. This is what we pray, O oh God, in this new year. I suppose we can make a resolution. Maybe the resolution is we resolve to let you manifest yourself as being the all-sufficient one in us. We resolve to take the pressure off us to be, to do, to overcome in our own strength. Instead, we look to you. We cling to you for blessing. We say, as did Jacob, oh, God, we will not let you go until you bless us. And then when you do, I pray we react as did Gideon. We fall on our knees. We worship you. And then we go and tell others what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this next year. We don't know what it holds, but as is said, we know who holds on to us. And we're grateful, permanent, wonderful, resurrected, living Savior that you will not let us go. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.